0: Before we open the scriptures, though, I want to uh, give you a little bit of a a financial report. Uh, We do this every year after we've closed out the financial year. And so we've done that, and I'm just so thankful to God for his grace and how uh, you all support this ministry. You know, Jesus said that where your treasure is, your heart would be also that means that our hearts actually follow what we do with our money. And money's a big competitor to the Lord. Jesus didn't say you can't, you, he, he didn't say you can serve God or Satan. He said you can serve God or money. And so the way you generously give and sacrificially give shows a lot about just the work that God's doing in your life and in your heart. So let me just kind of recap where where we've been this last year. And then I'll tell you as well, if you're interested in what our budget looks like for this next year, out at the info desk are some half sheets that kind of outline that budget. We try to be open and transparent about what we do with the money you give. And so you can pick that up if you're interested in it. But looking back at 2018, here's what it looked like financially. So our budget for the year was $2.1 million. And uh, we work really hard as a pastoral and elder team to make sure that that's a a number that we feel like is appropriate, that will meet the needs of the mission that God's called us to. And uh, then the staff and a lot of volunteers actually help manage that budget throughout the year. And I'm really excited to report that uh, the actual expenses were just a little bit under uh, what the budgeted need was, which is great. Yeah, so don't you wish your government could do that? (laughs) by the way, this is good advice for life. Spend less than you make. Uh, that's a good idea. And, uh, but you all gave a ton this year, as you're going to see throughout this. So just to our general budget, not to any special projects, uh, you gave over $2.6 million last year, which is amazing. So thank you. So it leaves quite a surplus, $553,000. And just so you know, the way that works is 70% of any congregation's surplus is able to be used by that congregation. So for us, that's all going into our building project. Uh, but 30% of it then goes into Redemption's reserves, which allows any of our nine congregations to have access to that money uh, when we deem that appropriate. So it really is a blessing, not just to our congregation, but to our movement. As a whole, so uh, you gave two point six million dollars to that. You gave uh, over five hundred thousand dollars to our home away from home initiative, which is part of our, that's our building project. And so, thank you for your generosity there. And then we also did a Christmas offering, and this is the one time of the year where we pass buckets. Right, it always amazes people because people go, "How is there this much giving?" And you don't even do an offering. I don't know. <laughs> I guess God just puts it in your heart, and you give, so many of you give online, or you give here, or or whatever the case might be. But we do pass buckets at Christmas, and this Christmas, our initiative was going towards foster care and adoption, and then toward being able to develop some leaders by bringing on a number of interns in in a number of our ministries across the church. And uh, you (laughs) blew us away again. So this year's Christmas offering, you gave over $67,000 to the Christmas offering, which is incredible. And so you add all that up, you had general giving, home away from home, Christmas offering, and you guys gave last year over $3.2 million. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. On behalf of our elders and our pastors and our staff, thank you for your faithfulness. What that represents is an investment in the kingdom of God, an investment in us trying to be the best friend our community has here, as well as the work that we're doing Around the world, so we really do appreciate that you uh, give this way and that you sacrifice. I know that when you look at a number that big, you feel like, "What is my stuff?" <laughs> I didn't get anywhere close to that much, <laughs> you know. What difference is it making? And each of us, as we make an investment, as we trust God, as we sacrifice, God uses it. And so let's give thanks to Him for that. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for how you are generous to us. The heart of the gospel is that you are giving. And so, God, thank you when you put it in the hearts of your people to give generously. And I know so many people give to other things beyond our church as well. And so thank you for that spirit of generosity. I pray it would continue. And I pray that you'd allow us to be faithful with the resources you've entrusted to us. God, we want to see you change many people's lives through the work of this mission. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to hang out today. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. And that is on page 838, if you have one of the hardcover Bibles. Again, that's Mark chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 6.
1: Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. May this word of the Lord fill our hearts and lives with the love of Jesus. You may be seated.
0: Thank you. As I get older, my memories of, of college start to fade. Uh, certain things that I used to remember, clearly I don't anymore. But there's one moment I remember from my time at the University of Illinois that I will never forget. Um, and that relates to this guy that uh, some of you have heard me talk about before a guy named Preacher Dan. And I think every large state university has a preacher Dan somewhere. Preacher Dan hung out in the quad. That was the area in the center of campus where all the big buildings were, lots of grass, and it looked like what college is supposed to look like. And uh, and Preacher Dan would hang out there and he would do open-air preaching, which really was more like open-air yelling at people. Was really more what Preacher Dan was doing. And most of it was, you know, the the main aim of of his preaching were the sorority girls. with skirts that he thought were too short. So that was kind of his main thing. But a Preacher Dan was like a broken clock. You know, he was right twice a day. Uh, and so every now and then you'd hear him and you'd go, oh yeah, that makes sense. But most of the time you'd hear him and you'd be like, oh my goodness, I, I, as a Christian, I just do not want people to listen to this guy. But because he would rant and rave and his antics, he always kind of would draw a crowd. And I remember one particular day coming out of Lincoln Hall uh, about noon. So it's kind of high, high time on campus, tons of students out there in the quad. And I come out of class and I see hundreds of people gathered around Preacher Dan. So I'm like, well, I got to see, right? This is kind of like you watch NASCAR for the wrecks, right? Like, so that's, I went over to go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to watch the wreck that's about to happen. Little did I know what kind of a wreck was about to happen. And so Preacher Dan is ranting and raving and he's doing his thing. And, uh, out of the circle surrounding him bursts this student in a tie dye shirt and he yells out, Hear ye, hear ye! Now introducing the first gay quad preacher. Well, some people see this, some people hear this, and the crowd gets bigger, and the crowd gets bigger. Well, this student starts ranting, he's, he's yelling, he's yelling, he's talking about whatever he's talking about, preacher Dan's talking about whatever he's talking about. They're not talking to each other, they're trying to talk over each other, and the only thing I really remember hearing was that the guy in the tie-dye shirt kept saying, you know, is this love? Christians say they're about love, but look at how they treat this person, look how they treat those people, and is this love? This was 20 years ago. It, Is this love? Is this love? Is this love? And and it's getting louder and it's getting louder and the crowd's getting bigger and the crowd's getting bigger until finally he goes, is this love? And Preacher Dan, I'll never forget this, he wheels around and he goes, I do love you, you miserable wretch! (laughs) And the whole crowd, hundreds of students did exactly what you just did. They uproarious laughter. No one could believe that he said what we all knew he really thought. And at that point I was like... I'm getting out of here before this gets even uglier. But I'll never forget that. I do love you, you miserable wretch. Dan was angry. He was honest. Even though he said, I love you, I don't think anybody gathered there believed it. So the question I have is, is it possible to be truly loving, truly honest, and truly angry? And the answer is yes, it is. We see it in the person of Jesus. In this story that we're going to look at today, Jesus is truly loving, he's truly angry, and he's truly honest. And we'll see, actually, that there was something that preacher Dan was missing that made it where he could only be angry, he could only be honest, but he couldn't be loving This series that we're doing is called Love Walked Among Us. It's the idea that while we often say that Jesus is God and that Jesus is like God, what we're trying to see in this series is that God is like Jesus. God is love, the scriptures say. And so when God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, love walked among us, love lived among us. And so what we're doing each week is looking at the person of Jesus, how he loved, with the desire that we would be moved and stirred to adore and to love him more and also challenged to love like he loves. We've looked the last couple of weeks at how love shows compassion. That's what we saw. That love looks and love cares. Love cared last week as we saw Jesus cared for the woman of the city who came and who worshiped him and he also cared for the Pharisees who were judging and accusing her in that gathering. He shows compassion. But love also as we'll see this week and next, love shows honesty. We haven't pit these against each other. Like, you can either be compassionate or you can be honest. You can either be, you know, kind and gracious or you can tell the truth. Jesus is always doing both. And so that's some of what we see in this passage. How do we be loving, angry, and honest all at the same time? So here's what I want to do. and I, I want to um, just have us kind of work through the story. Make sure we just zoom in on these six verses, really understand and feel the setting of what's happening. And then I want to draw out three things that Jesus shows us about love. That's where we're going to go today. So let's pray together. Father, we ask you, in the name of Jesus, to give our eyes and our hearts and our minds illumination. Help us to see what's here. Draw us into this story. Help us to see And adore Jesus. God, convict us in areas where, even though we are followers of Jesus, our lives are out of line with His. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to a life of love, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bible, we're gonna look at this story in detail. It begins in verse one. It says, Again, he entered the synagogue. Now the setting of all this, if you go back to Mark chapter 2, the setting is that Jesus and his disciples are in Capernaum. Capernaum was a town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was kind of the home base of Jesus' ministry. It's where Peter had his home, uh, and a lot of the disciples seemed to be from that area as they were fishermen up there. And so a lot of Jesus' ministry happened in this area. And it says here that they entered the synagogue. Now, archaeologists have uncovered this particular synagogue, and I've had the chance many years ago, some of you, if you've ever gone to the Holy Land, you go and you see this. This is somewhere everybody stops if they go up to the Sea of Galilee. You get to see the synagogue where this took place. Let me show you a couple pictures of this. This is kind of as though you're in the back of the room looking forward. You see up in the front, there's these really tall columns. Along the sides, there's these shorter columns. If you kind of uh, look at the next picture, it's really looking toward the back. And so you see the roof would have been relatively... Relatively short, um, but people would have been gathered in this open space. Along the side there, you see people sitting, and there were these places to sit and to gather. And so uh, while Jews would go to the temple to perform sacrifices, uh, people who lived further away from Jerusalem would create these synagogues, and that's where they would gather on the Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Somewhere during that window, they would have a gathering. And so that's where Jesus is, and that's where he shows up. He enters this synagogue, and it says... In verse 1, and a man there was there with a withered hand. The word withered in the original language means dried up, shriveled. It's often used in the Gospels to describe plants or trees that are dying. It's withering. The life has kind of been sucked out of it. That's his hand. Luke, actually, in his account of this in Luke 6, notices, and this makes sense because Luke was a doctor, he would notice this kind of detail, that it was his right hand that was withered. People in the first century would have thought of that as your kind of dominant hand, and for that to not be useful would have been considered almost maybe kind of a curse of some sort. And so here's this man there with a withered, dried up, shriveled, dying hand. It says in verse 2, and they watched Jesus. Who's they? Well, they are the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious leaders who are talked about a bunch in chapter 2. They're there, and they're watching Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. These religious leaders have already started to build their case against Jesus. Uh, They don't like him at all. They want to get rid of him. And you see why if you go back into chapter 2. So swipe back to chapter 2 and take a look at chapter 2, verse 7 where they say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone, right? So they think that Jesus is a blasphemer because he's told people, your sins are forgiven. They're saying, wait, 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 wait. He's claiming to have the authority of God. He's claiming to be God. Was he? Yes. Was he claiming to be that? Yes. Well, they notice that and they say, hey, human beings can't claim that sort of power. He's a blasphemer. So they're upset about that. But they're also upset that Jesus doesn't seem to be spending time with the people that religious people should be with. Look at chapter 2, verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He's hanging out with them. He's friends with them. He's enjoying them. And they're not the right crowd. Jesus not only is hanging out with the wrong people and making the wrong claims, but he doesn't seem pious enough. He's not kind of committed to all of the same practices the same way these religious leaders seem to be. And so verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So now they're upset they're not doing enough fasting. This all comes to a head in chapter 2, verse 24, about the Sabbath. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so the accusation that they're about to make, that they're looking for in chapter 3, verse 2, is they're looking to see whether Jesus would heal this man with a withered, dried up, weak, shriveled hand. Will he heal him on the Sabbath? Because if he does, that's a work and we're going to get him. Now, if you're not familiar with the Sabbath, I need to help you understand this. The Sabbath, as I said, began Friday night at sundown, and it went till Saturday at sundown. And it was this one day of rest that the people of Israel were given by God as a gift to renew and to restore them. It's part of the Ten Commandments. It's the Fourth Commandment. Let me show you in Deuteronomy chapter 5 this commandment. Deuteronomy 5 is a place that lists out the Ten Commandments, and here's what this commandment about the Sabbath was. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, this is a pretty thorough list, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So you get the picture. Six days you work, one day you rest. Everybody. Why? Why did God give this command? Why was this so significant? Well, there was something God wanted them to reflect on on this Sabbath day. It's the next verse. It says this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So God had seen his people in Egypt, in slavery, where they were working every day, right? We hear this and we go, Sick, work six days and rest one. Does this mean I have to give up a weekend day? <laughs> well, if you're really committed to being a Sabbatarian, you go figure that out. But, but to these Israelites, this was good news. I mean, these were folks that were doing slave labor. An off, day off. What do you mean, day off? I haven't had a day off. My father had a day off. My grandfather had a day off. What are you talking about? And now all of a sudden, God rescues them out of that world of slavery, putting them in a new promised land and says, good news, you get to take a nap, rest up. I'm the Lord your God who works on your behalf. Look at my mighty hand. Look at my outstretched arm that brought salvation for you. Now live in that restful, renewing reality. So the Sabbath was meant to be this thing that gave life, that gave wholeness, that gave rest, that gave peace. But instead, the people of Israel, in their effort to try to obey God, turned it back into something that became lifeless and withering, and enslaving. You actually see this even if you go to the nation of Israel today. If you go to Israel and you stay at a hotel, there's this weird thing that happens. If you're uh, not from there, it's this bizarre thing that happens on the Sabbath, where on the Sabbath what happens is all the elevators are programmed, and there's a sign kind of over where you would press the button, and you can't press the buttons, and it's programmed. that The elevator floor automatically stops at each floor, the elevator. Do you know why? Because if you press the button, that would create a spark, which would be like making fire, which would be working on the Sabbath. It's fascinating to me. You're fine to take the stairs, which is way more work, <laughs> but you can't press the button, right? That's what happens when you kind of take this thing that was meant to be life-giving and good and turn it into all these rules and regulations and laws. That, that, that wasn't part of the deal. And so there they are, they're watching this man, they're seeing whether Jesus will heal him so that they might accuse him. I just can't help but wonder, we don't know for sure, but I can't wonder, help but wonder if this guy was a plant. Was he regularly part of the synagogue gathering or were they saying, hey, you know what, why do you join us today? Come on in. We don't know. But Jesus knows what's going on and so he said, in verse three, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. He brings him in front of everybody. I have to think, this is this man's worst nightmare. I think about this. You're this man with this withered hand. You've probably had this condition for a long time. What do you spend your whole life doing? Trying not to be noticed. I don't want attention drawn to this. I don't want people to ask questions, because when people ask questions, well, when did this happen and how this happen? Have you gone this? Have you tried this essential oil? Have you done? Right, like, like, people, like, just leave me alone, right? I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be noticed. And now here Jesus is saying, come here. Everybody look, come here. Oh, what a terrifying moment. What's Jesus going to say? Well, Jesus asks a question, verse four, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Or to do harm, to save life or to kill. He says, "Listen, guys. Look at this man. Withered, shriveled hand. Let me ask you a question, everybody. Is it lawful to do good or to do to do harm, to save life or to kill? What should I do here, everyone? And the answer was. And you have to think that this man with the withered hand." is listening carefully. I mean, he's got to be thinking, man, everyone invited me today. They must be rooting for me, right? He's probably heard about Jesus because Jesus had done all this ministry in Capernaum. He'd healed lots of people. Maybe this guy was even one of the people still in line waiting to be healed when Jesus took off and did some other ministry. We don't know, but he knew about this. And maybe he's thinking, oh, everyone's so excited. This is why they invited me because they're rooting for me to be made whole on the Sabbath day. Wouldn't that be an amazing story? And Jesus says, what do you think, everybody? Everybody. Do good or do harm? What should we do? And the answer is silence. How must that have stung that man? He's looking at all these people. This is not a big town. He grew up with these people. I thought they were my friends. I thought they cared about me. And silence? That silence enrages Jesus. Look at verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, the man who's at the center of attention and doesn't really want to be and realizes the only guy who I think is maybe on my side is this Jesus guy, Now, the center of the center of attention becomes what? His hand. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. I wonder how many times this guy had heard that before. Maybe from doctors who had tried to work with him. Oh, stretch stretch it out. Let's do this physical therapy. Stretch it out. Let's try this ointment. Stretch it out. I wonder how many times he'd heard it in ridicule. Stretch out your hand. I wonder how many times other people teased and made fun of him saying those words. And now the center of the center of attention is on his hand. And he's got a choice to make, doesn't he? He could go, you know what? I've tried this before. I've, like, I've attempted this before. I, this is just my lot in life. I know But instead, he courageously believes Jesus, who is the God who delivered Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And it says, he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Think of the faith of this man. One commentator said that faith is not a private wager but a public risk when you realize that Jesus is the only hope you have. And he realizes Jesus is the only one on his side. Jesus is the only one that loves him. And Jesus is the only one that can do this. And so he stretches out his hand. It's the only place in scripture where someone is healed by being told to stretch out that body part, to use that body part. It's the only time that happens. It draws attention to this. What's the result? Verse 6, the Pharisees went out into the streets and announced, the kingdom of God has come. Everybody come see our Messiah. Oh wait, that's not what it says. It says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Just some kind of political dynamics. you got to understand to appreciate how serious this verse 6 is. The Pharisees, that word Pharisee means uh, separatists, separate ones. They were specifically saying we want to obey the Jewish law and we want nothing to do with Roman rule. Okay, that's the Pharisees. The Herodians were those who said, eh, we don't really care that much about the Jewish law. We're on board with Roman rule. So the Pharisees hate Jesus so much that they are willing to partner with their arch enemies to destroy him. And they are willing to break the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, and the ninth commandment, you shouldn't bear false witness, in order to hold up some misunderstanding of the fourth commandment. Hypocrisy everywhere. And in the midst of this, we see Jesus' honest, loving anger, and how it moves him in love Not to destroy, but to bring healing. And so that's what we want to reflect on here a bit. What does this passage show us about love? What does Jesus show us about love in this passage? The first thing is this, that love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. The law was a good thing given by God. It was uh, meant to be able to allow people to love God and love each other well. Think about the Sabbath. Hey, you get a day off. This is great. This is good news. Spend this day loving me. Spend this day loving one another. Let go of the turmoil and the stress and the anxiety of always having to be on rest. That's what the law was for, but they hadn't turned it into that. They would turned it into this anxious thing that you had to work really hard to keep. Love is the fulfillment of the law. The Pharisees had gotten to the point where they cared more about the law than the person. They cared more about the regulations than the relationships. I wonder if we do the same thing, where sometimes we take our eyes off of loving people because we're so concerned about things being done the right way. I was talking to a friend who worked at one point at a retirement home, and uh, that retirement home... I had a lot of live-in people who lived there, and there was a cafeteria. And this cafeteria made all this food every day. And this friend told me, you know, about 60% of it never got eaten. And most of the people that worked in this retirement home were minimum wage. But rather than letting all these minimum wage employees eat all the food that was left over, every night they threw it out. And they made really strict rules. If you work here on your lunch break, on any other time, you may not have this food. In fact, my friend had to fire people. His higher-up said, you need to fire these people because on their lunch break, they ate this food that was going to be thrown out anyway. Why? Because the regulations became more important than the relationships. Because the laws became more important than love. You go, man, that's just crazy. Who, who, would, who would do that kind of thing? Right? We read this story. We go, who would just sit there silent? I'll tell you who. You would. I would. We do this kind of thing all the time. right? Th- like, those seem like extreme examples. I was thinking, okay, when do I do this? Well, I do this every single day when I have to get my kids ready for school. at least I'm tempted to, right? Five days a week, I don't know who decides that kids should go to school at seven in the morning, but the only thing they really need in their life at this stage is sleep. Nope, we're not giving them that, so we're gonna have to get them ready for school. And that is a, any parents out there with me, right? And if you have multiple kids, you are tempted every day to prioritize the rules and the regulations over that relationship. Right? It's like get up, get in the bathroom, get off the toilet. All right, let's go. You got it? Do you have your lunch? Do you have your shoes? Do you have your thing? Do you have your uniform? Do you have blah, 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 blah. Right, get in the car. Get in the car. Get in the I'm serious. Get in the car. Right? Get in the car. Right? Like this is and and you forget I love these people. <laughs> They're image bearers of God. I love them. I take care of them. I want to have an ongoing relationship with them. I'm proud of them. They're sweet. They're great. Get in the car, right? And you become a maniac, just like I do, because at that point, the regulation becomes more important than the relationship. We do this all the time. I've been wrestling through this, even as I've been thinking about a situation that I've been invited into, and others of you in the church have done this as well. I've I've had the opportunity our family has had the opportunity to host in our home for 24 to 48 hours various people who show up at the border and claim asylum. They show up there and they make an asylum claim, they go through the legal process, they don't just sneak over but they actually go and they go to an asylum through an asylum process and ICE tries to vet them, tries to get their information. And before ICE sends them to family members that are in the country, they need a place to stay for 24 to 48 hours. And so the ICE, the government has asked the church, hey, would you host? Would you provide people to help host these people? And so I've had the chance to do that. And so some people in our church have found out about that. They know about that. And I just appreciate the genuine questions people have asked. Because a lot of people just go, that seems wrong. That's secure the border. They don't even listen to what's going on. But a lot of people have said, Hey, I've got some questions for you about that. I'm curious how you process this. Because what if, like, like, there's news reports that are saying people who are claiming asylum maybe don't have legitimate claims for asylum. So how do you handle that? People have said, you know what, I, I hear stories about how everyone's coming with kids, but a lot of the kids maybe aren't their actual kids. Like, what do you think about that? And they say, you know, it feels like we need to change this whole thing. Like, what do you think, how, how should we fix it? Here's the deal. Those are all questions that someone has to answer. But you know what? It ain't me. I don't work for ICE. I don't work for the Border Patrol. I'm not an elected official. If I were, I would have a lot of really hard questions to answer. It feels like we need a new system for how we do that as a country. It feels like we need to secure our border much better. It feels like we need much better paths for people to be able to come in the country, right? Like it's, all that should get fixed, but that ain't my job. So I want to pray for those who have to care about that, but, but what I've answered is said, you know what? I, I don't know if they have a legal, like if, if their claim for asylum is legit or not. I don't know, and you know what? I couldn't begin to know. I don't speak Spanish, <laughs> I don't know. But you know what? Our flinch is so often, what's the law? What's what's the rules? What if our flinch first was, here's people who have gone through a treacherous journey, and I want to love. What if that was our first flinch? I'm not saying the the laws and the rules are unimportant. They are very important, but they're not in our jurisdiction. Because we're not elected officials. We're citizens of the kingdom of Jesus okay? So, so that's just an example. And what Jesus is doing here is, again, he's not saying the law is unimportant. What he's saying is love fulfills the law. The point of the Sabbath was to bring life, to bring healing, to bring restoration. The point of the Sabbath was that God had restored his people using a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so when Jesus says, stretch out your hand, He's telling everyone there, this is the fulfillment of the law. This is what it's about. Love fulfills the law. The rest of the New Testament authors pick up on this. Galatians 5, 14, the Apostle Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Law matters. Rules matter. Policies matter. But our priority is love, which fulfills the law. Here's the second thing Jesus shows us about love is that love grieves at indifference. That's the thing that seems to break Jesus' heart. Jesus said to them, verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. But the next word is key. Grieved at their hardness of heart. Everyone would point at this as an example of righteous anger, right? Like we'd all say, hey, there's times when anger is sinful most of the time, and there's times when it's righteous. You go, well, how do you determine the difference? Here's what's fascinating. Most of us think it's righteous anger if we're right. That's not what you see in Jesus. Jesus, there's a number of times that Jesus gets angry, and it always comes when he is saddened by how others are being mistreated or unloved. He doesn't get angry about the way people mistreat him. It's always when he sees callousness toward his people. So he looks around at them with anger, grieved. All right, this is what was missing in preacher Dan. He was angry, he was honest, but he wasn't grieved, he wasn't broken hearted. He wasn't sad about the way that people, all these students were buying into a sexual ethic that is not in line with how God created the world and which leads to flourishing. He wasn't sad about that. He was just angry because he was right. That's what was missing. What sparks this grieving, this, what sparks this anger, it's the indifference. It's the hardness of heart. Listen, this is not a sin of ignorance. It's a sin of defiance. They did not not know, right, when Jesus says, what do you think, Everybody. What's lawful, to do good or do good harm? They weren't going, oh, man, he stumped me. I don't know. They knew the answer. They just didn't like the answer. They weren't ignorant. They were defiant. Let me ask you, what's an area where you know the answer? You know what's right. You know what God's calling you, and you just won't do it. You need to hear from this passage. You are hard of heart, and it grieves Jesus. What's the thing you keep relying on instead of him? And you know, I need to quit drinking that. I need to quit popping that. I'm just medicating myself with these things. I need to turn to Jesus. You know that. Do it. Who are the people that are in your path that every time you see them, you go, I want to go the other way? Not because they're evil or mean or destructive. They're just annoying. (laughs) And you know, God's calling you to love them. God's calling you to listen do it. Jesus is grieved at the indifference. And notice he's grieved for both of these groups of people. He's not just grieved for the man who is listening with a broken heart to the silence and indifference. He's also grieved for them. They've missed the whole point. The Messiah that they've been hoping for is there and they won't see him. And this breaks Jesus' heart. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus is pursuing the sinners and the tax collectors and the religious people. My favorite example of this is the story of the prodigal son. We always know about the the one son who went off like the irreligious people, but we often forget that there was another son who kept all the rules. And while the father went and pursued the unrighteous prodigal son, he also went out to beg the righteous, obedient son to come in and be part of the party. And he wouldn't. He'd stay out. Jesus is grieved for the man and for the people who don't love the man because he knows that not only does it hurt him, but it hurts them too. Here's a third thing that Jesus shows us about love in this passage is that love is costly. Love is costly. Loving this man this way cost Jesus his life look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This cost him his life. They started here, and through the rest of his life, they were plotting every opportunity they could have to kill him. Now, this didn't surprise Jesus. Jesus knew this. Jesus went into this totally aware that that's what was going on, right? Jesus was a lot like uh, those of you, God bless you, uh, moms of uh, young kids who, who you know, the kid gets sick, right? They wake up in the middle of the night, and they're hacking, and there's snot everywhere. And, and you just know what's coming, don't you? You're like, if I take care of them, if I hold them, if I nurture them, not only am I going to be up all night, but I'm going to get sick. You know that, don't you? <laughs> And then you just pray, oh, I hope the other kids don't get it, right? I hope we don't pass this whole... But you know that that's what's going to happen. And you know what you do? You look at that situation, and you love your kids. And so you go, you know what? I'm going in. And you know what it's going to cost you, and it does. But love is costly. Jesus knows what this is going to cost him. I wonder if there's something that you notice. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is really fascinating because Jesus actually, in verse 4, asks them two questions. Look at what he says. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? The second part of that question doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, I don't think anybody here is trying to kill the guy. Like, what do you mean, save life or kill? Jesus knows exactly what he's asking. The first question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Who's that question about? That's about the man. What do you think, guys? The Sabbath, should we use it to restore or should we use it to let this guy just keep hurting? Who's the second question about? What do you think, guys? Is it lawful to save life or to kill? That question's about him. Jesus is saying, you guys think you're so lawful. You think you're so righteous. Let me ask you, who are going to plan to kill me, don't think for a second I don't know what you're doing. Jesus knew it, and he saw it, and he said, I'm going in. And this man whose hand was withering and dying is brought to restoration and wholeness because Jesus was willing to eventually, for the cause of healing this man, be withering and dying on a cross. Jesus took his place. Jesus moved in. And Jesus knew love would cost him everything. And he did it anyway. See, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is grieved and angered at indifference, but it doesn't lash out. Instead, it still moves toward love and toward sacrifice, even at the cost of yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his wisdom, his insight, his brilliance in asking these questions and handling these situations. But God, more than that, we praise you for your grace and your kindness and your love. We thank you that he is willing to sacrifice and suffer so that we could be made whole. Thank you for Jesus who has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm to bring healing and wholeness God, we pray that that's what you would bring even to us now, that we would experience renewal and life and blessing through Jesus. God, in the areas where we are indifferent, in the areas where we've prioritized law over love, forgive us, lead us to repentance. And God, give us the courage, give us the strength to move toward actions of love, even when they're costly, when they cost our health or when they cost our money or when they cost our energy or they cost our time in the strength that we have in Jesus. Give us the power to love like that. We pray it in his name. Amen.